This is the Alcazine Brief with Peter Hoffman and Sonia Portillo. This week in the Alcazine Brief, we talk again about colorectal cancer. This is our third program in a three-part series about the disease, which is the third most common cancer diagnosed in the United States. This month is National Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month, and that's why we talk with a number of doctors about the disease. In this edition, we focus on misconceptions and myths. Here with me today are Dr. Paul Bergreen and Dr. Daniel Jandel, both from Arizona Digestive Health in Phoenix, Arizona, and Dr. Sukhdeep Pada from Arizona Gastrointestinal Associates and Arrowhead Gastroenterology Associates in Glendale, Arizona. Dr. Bergreen, Dr. Jandel, and Dr. Pada are all involved in the screening, diagnosis, and treatment of colorectal cancer, as well as prevention of the disease. This series is developed in collaboration with our online journal, Oncozine, at www.oncozine.com, where you can find additional information and the latest news about colorectal cancer, about diagnosis, and about screening. Let's listen to the interview. I'm here with Dr. Paul Berggreen, Dr. Dan Jandal, and Dr. Sukhdi Pada. Dr. Berggreen and Dr. Jandal are working for an organization called the Arizona Digestive Health, and Dr. Pada works for the Arizona Gastrointestinal Associates. In uh, previous episodes of the Ongusin Brief, we were talking a little bit about uh, all different aspects of uh, colon cancer, and so I'd like to uh, welcome three doctors here. Welcome to the Ongusin Brief. And in this episode, we would like to talk a little bit more about the patient. Um, we've been looking at screening. We've been looking at ways to prevent colon cancer. I've been looking at, at why screening is important about patient populations in general. But now let's turn the roles around and basically look at the patients you meet almost every day. One of the biggest things that um, may be concerning is that people have a number of misconceptions about cancer, about colon cancer, and the need to see a doctor, the need to be treated, the need for screening. So in this episode, let's talk a little bit about those misconceptions. Number one, and I think I would start with Dr. Berggreen, but I mean, feel free for you to all to uh, jump into the conversation. Misconception number one, maybe. Um, cancer is not preventable. A screening test can only detect cancer. It cannot prevent cancer. That is some of the things that we've heard or been submitted to us uh, by uh, audience members. What do you say if you hear that? Well, I tell people that the wonderful thing about colon cancer screening is that colonoscopy is not only a test for detection, but it is a test for the prevention of colon cancer. In fact, that is its great benefit, is that by doing a simple colonoscopy, and removing precancerous polyps, which we do on a daily basis, we are literally preventing that person from getting colon cancer from those polyps. So it absolutely prevents colon cancer. Dr. Berggreen is saying that you know polyps are precancerous in nature. We know that in colon cancer in particular, there is this sequence of events that happens that leads to colon cancer. So you start getting a, a growth, a polyp, which is an adenoma, and that goes through sequential changes and grows in size and becomes cancer. And this is a well-documented pathway for development of colon cancer 
that occurs probably in 90% of the colon cancers that, that, that we see that start with a polyp and go this way. And if not taken care of, a polyp can turn into cancer. So colonoscopy is a very, very strong tool for prevention of colon cancer. I think that's what, if we screen people with asymptomatic, who are asymptomatic for colon cancer, colon cancer is a rare finding in those screening examinations. What we're trying to look for more as gastroenterologists and as trained gastroenterologists would be for polyps that are significant or small, and we can remove them so that and then put that patient into a more aggressive surveillance protocol that if you don't have any polyps on your colonoscopy, you can go for 10 years as long as you don't have any other family history and things like that. But if you have polyps in your colon, depending on how many polyps you have, how big the polyps are, what the number of the polyps is, and we put you in a surveillance program that, that requires colonoscopies more frequently in those patients and prevent cancer from happening in the future. So if you look at, at this particular at the screening, right? And we'd be talking about colonoscopy, we'd be talking about colorectal cancer. Would it be fair to say, um, in, in if you look at different cancers, for example, that with, for example, with the widespread adoption of the pap smear, for example, a completely different kind of cancer, it was possible to really detect precancerous uh, issues and it transferred the way of how we look at cervical cancer right now. And it really benefited patients and the mortality rate as such, the, the chance that people actually get the cancer and die, really reduced, uh, I think it's up to 75% in the last 50 years. Is that something, is that analogy also similar to that with colonoscopy and with uh, screening in colorectal cancer or actually before colorectal cancer hits? Absolutely. So I'm a gastrointestinal pathologist and I look at polyps under the microscope every day. And fortunately, most of the polyps I look at are precancerous but not cancerous yet. And that means we're catching these polyps, these precancerous lesions, before they turn into cancer. In fact, I, I believe that colonoscopy as a screening uh, procedure is more effective at uh, preventing cancer than the pap smear was, because you mentioned 70, 75% mm -hmm. for the pap smear. I think it's on the order of 90% for the colonoscopy, and it might even be a little bit greater than that. And I mentioned in a previous episode, and I think it's worth bringing up again, that I had a, a recent patient came in when he was uh, 51 years old, and he had no symptoms. And he came in because, you know, he knew he needed to get a colonoscopy. And when he was 50, he just didn't kind of feel like doing it. And so he kind of put it off. And fortunately, I don't know if it was his wife or his physician that said, hey, you really need to go in and get this done. But fortunately, whoever convinced him to go do it, convinced him. He got the colonoscopy and a polyp was found. And when I looked at that polyp under the microscope, it had developed cancer. So it had moved on from just being a precancerous polyp to an actually cancerous polyp. And the patient uh, underwent surgery, had a small section of his colon removed, and is alive and well today. And had he shown up at age 50, like it was recommended, he likely would have just had a precancerous polyp with no cancer in it. And had he shown up age 52, uh, you know, the chances are much higher that he might have died from that colon cancer. Right. Well, that's, that's a good uh, reminder. Uh, absolutely. Another misconception. Uh, colorectal cancer is not a problem to our society because we have colonoscopy screening. Would you say that is correct or not correct? Well, we have colonoscopy screening to try to make this not a problem, but we're not there yet. So colonoscopy and any type of colon cancer screening is a, is a concerted effort nationally to make colon cancer not a problem. 
we are not there yet. We are nowhere near that there yet. But colonoscopy is the gold standard. It is the most effective tool towards getting to that goal. And the goal is basically to eradicate colon cancer. That is that is a, a lofty goal. I don't know if we'll ever completely get there, but with appropriate resources and appropriate screening programs and the the and the adequate amount of public education regarding the need for these tests, we'll get close. So again, it's important to get screened. And that actually brings me to this month. March is uh, National Colon Cancer Awareness Month. Um, so again, this is an important issue to talk about, to make sure that people understand that, yes, it is a problem to society, but we avoid, we by, by screening, we minimize that. Is that the right interpretation? Sure. Yes. Exactly. Let's take a short break. After the break, we're back with our interview with Dr. Paul Bergring, Dr. Daniel Jondal, and Dr. Sukhdeep Pada. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is The Youngest in Brief. Some of the best sounds you'll ever hear are generic, safe, effective, even money-saving, just like FDA-approved generic drugs. Even if they don't come in the exact same color or shape as their brand name equivalents, they have the same key ingredients and go through a rigorous review process. Talk to your doctor or pharmacist today and visit fda.gov slash generic drugs. Generics are safe, effective, and can save you money. You'll like the sound of that. Each day, researchers make new discoveries that bring us closer to the moment when all cancer patients can become survivors. Some days they take small steps. Others, huge discoveries lead to giant leaps forward. This progress, both small steps and giant leaps, happens with the help of clinical trials. Clinical trials are a fundamental path to progress and the brightest torch researchers have to light their way towards better treatments. And if you've been diagnosed with cancer, they may be your brightest ray of hope. Clinical trials introduce new hope in addition to the current standard of care, by allowing researchers to provide participants access to cutting-edge and potentially life-saving treatments. So if you're interested in exploring new treatment options while helping to light the path for other patients, clinical trials may be the best choice for you. Speak with your doctor and visit standuptocancer.org slash clinical trials to learn more about clinical trials. Together, we can stand up for all of us. This is the Yonkazine Brief with Peter Hoffman and Sonia Portillo. And welcome back. I'm Peter Hoffman and this is the Yonkazine Brief. If you're just joining us today in the Yonkazine Brief, we talk with Dr. Paul Bergring, Dr. Daniel Jondal, and Dr. Sukhdi Pada. In this edition of the Yonkazine Brief, we talk about colorectal cancer, including some misconceptions and myths surrounding the disease. Let's listen to the next part of our interview. Now, another misconception. Colonoscopy for screening is good enough as a testing option. I mean, the good enough between uh, markers is like that. I mean, what would you say about that, Dr. Pada? Colonoscopy for screening is it's good enough. It is a good test. I would say it's a great test. And uh, I think it is the best test out there for screening for uh, colon cancer and prevention of colon cancer. It's the only test that offers the benefit for prevention as well as for screening. Right. 
again, we are looking for precancerous growths. And as I said earlier, that finding cancer in an asymptomatic patient would be relatively uncommon during colonoscopies, but finding polyps that are precancerous is very common. It's, you know, the adenoma detection rate as we get older, uh, or adenoma formation in, in, the, in the colon, there's 30 to 40% of the patients who have adenomatous polyps in the colon. So it's a very, very common finding on a daily basis that we see on colonoscopies. We remove and I'll, I'll, I'll add to that, just keep in mind, there are three tiers of recommendations for screening tests that have been approved by the government, by the multi-society task force. Colon cancer prevention Tier one is colonoscopy or an annual FIT test. And FIT is fecal immunohistochemical testing, which is a microscopic blood test in the stool. But colonoscopy has long been considered the gold standard by essentially everyone. Tier two tests are options. They are not as accurate, and that's why they are tier two. And those include things like a CT colonography, which is the old-fashioned virtual colonoscopy or a CAT scan of the colon, basically, a flexible sigmoidoscopy every five to 10 years, or a cologuard every three years, all not as good as tier one. And I, I've brought this up in previous episodes, and I think it's really worth bringing up again. And, and that is, uh, we were all discussing amongst our physician colleagues, uh, you know, we all have friends and, and colleagues who are physicians that we hang out with and, and talk to on a regular basis. And Personally, I don't know a single one that would do anything but colonoscopy. Agreed. Again, it's good to realize, I mean, how important the screening part is. But there are, but I said, we were talking about misconceptions. Um, so one of the misconceptions is that patients may say, well, you know, I see those uh, home uh, stool tests, and you refer to some of them, um, I see on TV, um, and that's good enough for me. What would you say to them? As I said earlier, I think without a proper discussion with the patient as to what the tests offer and what the benefits of these tests are, a decision should be made on informed, an informed basis because you need to make sure that you understand what the test offers, what the limitations of those tests are. And by far, colonoscopy is superior, is more cost-effective, it's preventative for development of cancer in the future, and a lot of these stool-based tests are good in detection of cancer. They have a fairly good sensitivity in some ways, but they may also miss a lot, and that's what's important. Dr. Bergreen, your opinion? You have to understand the limitations of any test. It is accepted that colonoscopy is the gold standard. However, if we can get more people screened by any means, that's a good thing. We also need to understand that there are limitations to tests that are not the gold standard. And one of those is the one that's being advertised pretty heavily right now called Cologuard. And Cologuard is a combination test that checks for abnormal DNA in a person's stool, and it also checks for microscopic blood. It is an adequate test for people who will not or cannot have a colonoscopy who are average risk, no personal history of cancer, no family history of cancer, no prior history of colon polyps, inflammatory bowel disease, or any symptoms. In that relatively small segment of the population, Cologuard is an adequate test, but you have to understand also that it has a significant miss rate of clinically important polyps and cancers, and that miss rate is about 8%. That seems like a small number. In medical terms, that's a very large number. It also has a significant false positive rate. 
of people with a positive cologuard who undergo colonoscopy, 45% of those colonoscopies will be normal. And yet the and patient t- has... Tell me, tell, me, tell me about why that is so important to understand. It's really important for two reasons. Number one, it creates a significant amount of anxiety in a patient who says, oh no, I have a positive colon cancer test. I've got colon cancer and turn out to not. The other really important thing here is that the government has agreed that colon cancer screening for an average risk person is a covered benefit, therefore at no cost to the patient. When that patient chooses Cologuard and that test becomes positive and the patient is referred for a colonoscopy, the colonoscopy is no longer a covered screening benefit. The patient has used up their covered screening benefit with the Cologuard test. And therefore, the colonoscopy is now diagnostic and is a regular medical expense. And people who come to us with that positive test are quite unhappy with that financial burden when they said, well, I could have just had a colonoscopy. Why didn't I just have a colonoscopy? And I said, you know, we would tell the patient, well, we're not the ones that recommended the Cologuard. And we're not actually advertising colonoscopy on TV. We're advertising colonoscopy to our patients in our offices every day. And, and that's that's a key thing to understand that uh, that has a financial risk for a patient. And so in that case, if, if you are in that small category of patients that may, or potential patients or of people that may benefit from uh, from a test like this, it's okay, but you would rather see them all go for a colonoscopy. Absolutely. If you can get a gold standard test, why wouldn't you? Right. I would say that the as far as the screening is concerned, there is no data at this time to support that the number of people who are getting screened is still two-thirds of the population. And people are choosing alternative tests that may not be as good as a colonoscopy is. And that's what the concern is. In the last year, there is significant uptake in the amount of Cologuard tests that are being done. And that is bound to lead to some missed diagnosis and late diagnosis. So definitely a misconception. Homeschool, uh, homeschool, homestool test, as advertised, has its place, but uh, it's not a gold standard. I mean, uh, now another misconception. A blood test cannot be used for colon cancer screening. Is that is not... I don't think that's a misconception. I think that's true. Okay. We're hoping in the future that a blood test could be used for colon cancer screening and that it would be sufficiently accurate and cost-effective. And that that would be a huge win for society in general. But we're not there yet, and I don't think we're that close, quite frankly. Not in the next few years, I don't think. I think I'd be more interested to see if there's a blood test that can detect colon polyps, because that's where where the money is. We prevent cancer from detecting polyps and removing polyps. Let's move to another misconception. So if somebody comes to you with the statement, I don't have a family history of colorectal cancer, so I don't really need to get screened. What do you say? Let me st- start with uh, Dr. Jandal. Sorry. Couldn't be uh, farther from the truth. Patients every day that develop colon cancer don't have a family history. I, and I don't, uh, I can't quantify that for you. Probably are some statistics out there. I don't know if any anyone else here, uh, Dr. Bergerin, please chime in. So keep in mind that patients who have a first degree relative with colon cancer diagnosed at a reasonably young age, as in before 60, those people are high risk. And the average 
age of 50 does not apply to them. They are typically screened significantly earlier, depending on a number of factors. So a family history puts you at high risk. What we're talking about here is average risk Americans who need to have their colonoscopies at the appropriate time. So the average risk of getting colon cancer in this country is 5%. So 5% of the population eventually in their lifetime may get colon cancer. That's just the average risk across, uh, across the population. That is anybody. That's anybody. And if you have a family history, that risk is about two to three times higher. Uh, so naturally, if you, have, if you have a cancer in a family that, uh, or a family, close family member before the age of 60, and the recommendations are to start earlier, screening starts at age 40 or 10 years before the cancer occurred in, uh, in somebody in, in your incident case. So that is different. So those people need to be screened more aggressively, in, but the average risk is very significant, and that's where colon cancer is more prevalent sporadically, and that's where it, it applies to the entire population. Right? Let's take a short break here, and then we talk some more with Dr. Paul Bergreen, Dr. Daniel Jondal, and Dr. Sukhdeep Pada. Each day, researchers make new discoveries that bring us closer to the moment when all cancer patients can become survivors. Some days they take small steps. Others, huge discoveries lead to giant leaps forward. This progress, both small steps and giant leaps, happens with the help of clinical trials. Clinical trials are a fundamental path to progress and the brightest torch researchers have to light their way towards better treatments. And if you've been diagnosed with cancer, they may be your brightest ray of hope. Clinical trials introduce new hope in addition to the current standard of care by allowing researchers to provide participants access to cutting-edge and potentially life-saving treatments. So if you're interested in exploring new treatment options while helping to light the path for other patients, clinical trials may be the best choice for you. Speak with your doctor and visit standuptocancer.org slash clinical trials to learn more about clinical trials. Together, we can stand up for all of us. Most of us like to be out in the sun. That's why sunscreen and other safety measures are key to protecting your skin from aging and cancer. The FDA recommends using a sunscreen with an SPF of 15 or higher. Also, look for broad spectrum on the label. That means both harmful ultraviolet A and B rays are blocked. Remember, SPF plus broad spectrum equal healthy fun in the sun. Visit www.fda.gov sunscreen for more information. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. This is the Alcazine Brief with Peter Hoffman and Sonia Portillo. Welcome back. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Oncosine Brief. If you're just joining us, today in the Oncosine Brief, we talk with Dr. Paul Bergreen, Dr. Daniel Jondal, and Dr. Sukhdeep Pada, who are all involved in the diagnosis and treatment of colorectal cancer. And there's another misconception that's out there, and it's probably something that you hear quite often. Um, I don't need to start screening until I'm older, and then older is a little bit unclear what that means. Yeah, so I, I think that's a, a true statement as long as you don't mind getting col potentially getting colon cancer. I, you know, it's uh, the reality is screening tests are are designed to keep people from getting cancer. For colon cancer specifically, we've got current uh, age of fifty is recommended in order to prevent uh, the vast majority of colon cancers. For different types of cancers, there are different uh, screening ages that that we start at. 
unfortunately, we see patients on a regular basis that have that that sense or that attitude of, you know, I'm not really old enough to develop cancer. I don't know anyone at age 55 that got cancer, so I'm not going to worry about it. And those we have those patients in our offices on a regular basis that have colon cancer. Yeah, Keep in mind that the American Cancer Society just last summer lowered their formal recommendation from 50 to age 45 because a significant amount of, amount of data that has come out in recent years showing that the incidence of new cases of colon cancer has shifted to younger patients. Now, that recommendation was just made and has not been adopted by uh, the federal government yet for Medicare and Medicaid patients, and we'll see what the government decides to do with that in coming years. But that is a formal recommendation from the American Cancer Society. Is it fair? I mean, one of the things that I think the American Cancer Society also says is that uh, since 1994, there is about a 50% increase in the number of uh, uh, patients with colorectal cancer uh, since that time. Is, is, those, those statistics make sense in, in the fact that now people, uh, basically under 50, uh, that makes sense to actually now to get, if you can, go be screened sooner. I mean, I think you, Dr. John, you referred to that earlier. Uh, absolutely. And I, I uh, mentioned in a previous episode, I am 45 this year and I am going to get a colonoscopy. Am I looking forward to it? Eh, not really. It's not going to necessarily be something I'm, you know, run to my uh, gastroenterologist and say, hey, sign me up. But since I know it saves lives, I will get it done this year. I don't know that my uh, insurance will pay for it, to be honest. And I know that's a big issue for a lot of people. I'm I'm personally going to uh, pay for it regardless of my insurance company. But I hope that some of your listeners are the decision makers at insurance companies. And I hope they're aware of the American Cancer Society's decision to lower the, the age of recommended screening to, to 45. And I hope they look closely at the data because I think the data really does support that. And as a gastrointestinal pathologist, I diagnose colon cancer in patients under the age of 50 on a regular basis. And it's very disconcerting to me. It's very uh, unsettling to me. In fact, I, I diagnose patients under the age of 40. I wouldn't say weekly, but it's certainly monthly. And so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a shame that uh, more people can't get screened and at a younger age if the data supports that. I think one of the things that you also mentioned, I mean, you go as, as a 45-year-old man to go do this, uh, this test. But I think to take away a little bit of the fear Dr. Berkman also mentioned that earlier, it's important to realize that uh, colonoscopy is not uh, that threatening. It's not that people should not be afraid of it. Can you say something again, that, a little bit allude about that? Yeah, I'm just going to let people know that I've been doing this for a very long time. And, and back when I started in the very early 90s, colonoscopy was not a particularly pleasant test. And it got a reputation back then, that it was an unpleasant test and that people would go out of their way to avoid it. In recent years, the last 10 years or so, the technology, the technique, the prep, the medications, et cetera, have improved so dramatically that colonoscopy, I, I literally can tell you, colonoscopy is just no big deal. It really is no big deal. It's one day off from work. It's, you know, total time in the facility typically is somewhere short of two hours. The procedure itself is 20, 25 minutes. There's no pain. It's an extremely safe procedure, and people should not fear it. It's just not that big of a deal anymore. Sign me up. I think the risk of complications from colonoscopy are very, very rare, especially 
in healthy individuals who are getting screening colonoscopies, that's even less common to have any sort of uh, post-procedure um, uh, complications or anything like that. So people do very well with colonoscopy. The techniques have improved. The, the preparations have improved greatly. And uh, the uh, sedation has improved greatly. People don't feel the procedure much at all. And uh, post-procedure uh, recovery is very smooth. There are some limitations. You can't drive the rest of the day. We recommend somebody to, to be coming with, with you at the time of the procedures. Uh, and, but it's a day taken away in, in that sense that you can't do anything important that day. But certainly it's only about two hours in, in the facility to get it done and get it over with. And if it's and a normal examination, yeah. it's once every 10 years, so that's not that big of a deal. So get it done, but basically that's your recommendation. Yeah, for exactly. Right. We're going to talk a little bit more about patients and how difficult it may be to um, sitting in front of a patient, but maybe also be the patient and hear the message, you have cancer. Uh, often that is very emotionally challenging. So what would you recommend, Dr. Pada? I would like to start with you. What, would, what are some of the things that um, are important for you to help a patient, but also for a patient to understand about, for example, a diagnosis of cancer? Yeah, we are put into that situation often where we have to give this difficult news to the patient that uh, we found something on colonoscopy. And sometimes it's, and most of the times, it's often after the procedure that we have to go to recovery and inform the patient that there was a significant finding on your colonoscopy. Obviously, it's uh, not the, what the patient wants to hear. And even for us to deliver that message, it can be challenging and um you know, we at that time the patient is also waking up from the sedation, so we also are cognizant of that, and we uh, want to make sure that there is a family member who is available. And obviously, that is prior to the procedure. We make sure that the patient consents to a family member being present after the procedure, no matter what the findings are. And sometimes the patients don't want this to be disclosed to other family members or, or whoever is driving them that day. So we are uh, aware of that ahead of time. And when we go to the patient, we often have to tell them that there was a significant finding at the colonoscopy. Obviously, we don't have a diagnosis at the time because a diagnosis of cancer is more of a pathological diagnosis that has to be confirmed by, by pathology. But the findings are very suspicious, and that's what we tell the patient at that time, that we have a finding that is suspicious, and the patients often react differently. Some patients are very emotional about that that news. Some patients take it very well. And uh, if the patient has been symptomatic, they are uh, they may be expecting something uh, to do uh, uh, of that kind of a news, but that's rare. And uh, we often would tell them that okay, this is just a this finding needs to be confirmed. Obviously, we have to give them medical facts at the time that what what are the next steps and stuff. So we address them empathetically with the patient that okay, we're going to be expecting something. We want the pathology to come back. In the meanwhile, we also want to get the ball rolling for the patient in terms of getting them set up with the next set of consultations that they will need with other providers. Imaging can be set up at the time, and uh, we want to make sure they follow up in the office in the within the next day or two when the pathology is back so that we can sit with them in a more relaxed fashion in an office setting when the sedation is worn off and talk in more detail. And that's what, when more detail will be given to the patient about what, what it is. Hopefully the CAT scan results may be back by then. And at that time, we want to make sure we send them to our 
oncology friend uh, doctors, and we also want to make sure that uh, we want to send them to uh, the surgeons appropriately. Okay, thank you very much. Let's take a short break here. After the break, we're back with more information about where to find more information about colorectal cancer screening, diagnosis, and treatment, and what you can do to cope if you have been diagnosed with the disease. I'm Peter Hovland, and this is the Oncocene Brief. Each day, researchers make new discoveries that bring us closer to the moment when all cancer patients can become survivors. Some days they take small steps. Others' huge discoveries lead to giant leaps forward. This progress, both small steps and giant leaps, happens with the help of clinical trials. Clinical trials are a fundamental path to progress and the brightest torch researchers have to light their way towards better treatments. And if you've been diagnosed with cancer, they may be your brightest ray of hope. Clinical trials introduce new hope in addition to the current standard of care by allowing researchers to provide participants access to cutting-edge and potentially life-saving treatments. So if you're interested in exploring new treatment options while helping to light the path for other patients, clinical trials may be the best choice for you. Speak with your doctor and visit standuptocancer.org slash clinical trials to learn more about clinical trials. Together, we can stand up for all of us. Most of us like to be out in the sun. That's why sunscreen and other safety measures are key to protecting your skin from aging and cancer. The FDA recommends using a sunscreen with a sun protection factor, or SPF, of 15 or higher. Also, look for broad spectrum on the label. That means both harmful ultraviolet A and B rays are blocked. UVA rays age the skin, UVB rays burn, and both cause cancer. But the perfect sunscreen doesn't count if you use it wrong. Don't need sunscreen on a cloudy day? Wrong. 80% of UV rays still get through the haze. Only use sunscreen at the beach? Nope. Anytime you're outside, UV rays attack the skin, so you need protection. And you have to reapply sunscreen every two hours. Remember, SPF plus broad spectrum equal healthy fun in the sun. Visit www.fda.gov sunscreen for more information. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. This is the Alcazine Brief with Peter Hoffman and Sonia Portillo. And welcome back. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Oncocene Brief. This episode of the Oncocene Brief was the last episode in the three-part series about the disease. However, in the next few weeks, we will continue to discuss the importance of screening and early diagnosis. Because one thing is very clear, a cancer diagnosis is not only medically challenging, it is in most cases very emotionally challenging. And while most patients learn to cope with their disease in their own unique way, here are some additional suggestions that may help you. First of all, know what to expect is an important step in coping. If you have been diagnosed with cancer, try to learn as much about your cancer as possible to help you feel comfortable when making treatment decisions. Ask your doctor to tell you the type and stage of your cancer, as well as your treatment options and their side effects. Keep in mind, the more you know, the more confident you'll be when it comes to making decisions about your own care. It is also important to keep friends and family close. 
researchers have shown that keeping your close relationships strong will definitely help you deal with your cancer and cancer treatment. Your friends and family can provide the practical support you'll need and they can serve as an emotional support when you feel down, depressed or overwhelmed. Finally, it is important to find someone to talk with. Find a good listener who is willing to listen to you talk about your hopes and fears. This may be a close friend or trusted family member. But the concern and understanding of a counselor, medical social worker or cancer support group may also be helpful. If you don't know where to find local support groups in your area, ask your doctor about it. And there are also a lot of trusted information resources you can find online. The website of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention focuses on screening tests for men and women aged 50 years and older. This website includes fact sheets with basic information about colorectal cancer. Another resource is the website from the National Cancer Institute, which provides information about colorectal cancer for patients and healthcare professionals. And if you want to learn more about personalized medicine and targeted therapies in cancer, including colorectal cancer, visit the website of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, or ASCO, which includes doctor-approved patient information. Another resource is the website from the American Cancer Society. This website offers a wealth of information about cancer, including risk factors, symptoms, how a particular cancer is found, and how it is being treated. For us here at the Onkis in Brief, we want to thank you, our listeners and underwriters, for your ongoing support. Thanks to your support, our program now has a wider reach with distribution via iHeartRadio in addition to PRX, Public Radio Exchange, and in the United Kingdom and mainland Europe via UK Health Radio. You can also download our program via iTunes. In Arizona, you can listen to the Onkis in Brief via Independent Talk 1100 KFNX, one of the top 10 radio stations in Arizona reaching almost 5 million people throughout the state. For more information about that, check our online journal, Oncozine, at www.oncozine.com. To help make this program possible, we again need your help. If you want to support this program, know that your support for this program allows us to bring you interviews with experts involved in the development of novel diagnostic and new cancer treatments. For more information about how to support the Oncozine Brief, Go to our website at oncozine.com or visit our page at patreon.com forward slash the Oncozine Brief. Finally, if you're living in the United States and want to receive our newsletter, text the word cancer to 66866 and we'll make sure that you'll receive our newsletter, which includes an overview of the latest news in oncology and hematology. Thank you all and thank you for listening and join us again for our next episode. I'm Peter Hofland. And this is Youngest in Grief. The Oncazine Brief was produced for Sun Valley Communication by Peter Hoffman, Sonia Portillo, Evan Wint, David Kaler, and Sean Mayer, and distributed by InPress Media Group. Support for the Oncazine Brief comes from listeners of this station and our commercial underwriters and advertisers. For more information about underwriting and sponsoring options, contact Sean Mayer in California at 949-923-1660 or visit our website at oncozine.com forward slash underwriting. The Oncozine Brief contains health and medicine-related information and is provided for educational and entertainment purposes only. 
The content is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health. If you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her about it.